All right, well, Mike, if you'll come on up here. Welcome, Mike Kuhn, one of our own from Avery County. <laughs> Thank you. From just down the road. Thank you, Ryan. And I uh, want to welcome you to Plum back to Plumtree. Thank you, Finn. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, back to Plumtree is right, because this is where I grew up, and it is uh, wonderful to be back with you. Thank you so much for having me. <clears throat> now, I've sort of uh, roamed the earth since I left here. Uh, it's wonderful to see some high school friends, by the way. Thank you for being here and smiling at me. That's really encouraging. Thank you. Um, and I've been on a long journey, really. Um, and, you know, when you go places, the way you see things changes, right? Because you see things from the perspective of the people that you love and that you're learning about. And uh, my perspective has changed so much that sometimes I don't even know if I'm the same person, right? So, so what, I'm, what I'm here to do this morning really is to give you an invitation. <clears throat> to give you an invitation on a journey of changing the way you see. And I know all of you are on that journey. I'm on that journey. Now our journeys are going to intersect. So I'm not going to scold you this morning or say you should see things this way. I'm just going to invite you. And the Word of God is going to invite us together to see things differently. Now we're going to look at Genesis 16, 1 through 16. I think we do have a PowerPoint back there that will just put that title and scripture up. Um, the title of this message is Finding Hagar, Finding Hagar, and you'll probably know this story from Genesis 16. It's when Hagar uh, runs from Abraham and Sarah's home, and she encounters the angel of the Lord. So we're going to just uh, read this, I'm going to read it for you, and if you will, just give me your attention, and let's, uh, let's start by saying, Holy Spirit, come. You've been exalted in this place. You've been worshipped. Uh, we've sung that your goodness is running behind us. Your goodness is the theme of our lives. So now we're going to see, did your goodness run after Hagar? And is your goodness still running after Hagar and Ishmael today? We want to see that. So open our eyes, Spirit through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So this is Genesis 16, 1 to 16. You can follow along. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. <clears throat> it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. 
do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy, means the well of the living one who sees me. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. It's the word of the Lord. Thank you. Now, when I was a younger father, I had this experience. I wonder if any of you dads have had it, that we sort of get caught up in the things we're doing, and we get, I guess we get lied to. We believe that the things we're doing are maybe more important than those little ones that are sitting at our feet, right? Our children. And I had three daughters, and as they came along in line, they got more and more bold. And by the third one, she just was very bold. And one day I was a little bit distracted from what I was doing, and my little three-year-old daughter came up and planted herself right beside me. She put her little fat hands on either side of my cheek, and she turned me to look at her in the eye. And she said, Daddy, look at me. Daddy, look at me. What happened there has stayed with me because it's taught me that I think the greatest desire and need we all have as human beings, male, female, it doesn't really matter, is to be seen. Yeah? It's to be the object of someone's affection. Now, this woman, Hagar, well, this story, you know, it has all the things that wouldn't really be attractive to us, right? Like uh, polygamy, a husband married to more than one wife, a wife who gets her sense of self-worth from bearing children, right? That's not, that's not going to sell a lot of books these days. You know, sort of an ancient kind of Bedouin culture, right? They're sort of going through the desert, living in tents and so forth. So none of that would be very attractive to us, maybe, in this story. But this story tells of the most profound human need, the need to be the object of someone's affection, to 
be seen. And all the more, because this little Egyptian slave girl, she might have been in her late teens, she may have been in her early 20s. She'd been enslaved for at least 10 years. That's how long they'd been back from Canaan. Her body was not her own. Her energy was not her own. Her time was not her own. I've seen these domestic slaves in the Middle East. I know the lives they live. And it's a life without a horizon. It has no future. It doesn't look forward. And here, she knows herself to have been seen. She is seen. Not only was Hagar's time and energy and her body was not her own, but now her very womb was not her own. Women, you get that, right? More than I do. And she had given herself to be the surrogate wife so she could sire his offspring, a man who was probably at least 60 years older than her. So, right, think about it. Any dreams she might have had of the little boys she had played with around the water wheel in Egypt, you know, of marrying and of having children of her own, gone. Gone. This was a woman who was fleeing. It says that Sarah treated her harshly. That's the same word that was used of the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. They were treated harshly. Harshly. Isn't it interesting that we have now this Egyptian slave girl in the house of the Hebrew matriarch and patriarch, just like we have the, the Hebrews in the house of the Egyptians enslaved. So it's sort of a mirror, it's sort of a parallel, isn't it? So I'm just going to ask two simple questions this morning. The first one is, who was this angel of the Lord? Who was this person that met her and spoke to her? And then the second question is very simply, what did he say to her? What did he say to her? So let's think about the angel of the Lord. Um, I used to spend the night at Mamaw's house up here on Squirrel Creek Road. And she had a wonderful portrait hanging over her guest bed of an angel, right? And it was this glowing sort of female being with wings protruding out the back, and this angel was ushering these two kids across a bridge. So I guess this was the guardian angel, and you guys have seen this image, you know about it. And that's how I sort of developed my understanding of what an angel was, right? That's the image I have in my mind. Now, I want to say to you that if that's the image you have in your mind of angel, just remember that the writer of Genesis didn't have any exposure to Renaissance art. He never saw that glowing, luminous female angel helping children across the bridge. And the word he used was malach Yahweh, malach. Malach in Hebrew just means sent one, one who is sent of Yahweh. And so I'm going to suggest that probably what the angel looked like might have been something more like this. It might have been a very normal encounter. And plus, the identity of this angel is so much more intriguing and fascinating than the, you know, glowing person helping 
kids across a bridge. Because this person, the sent one of Yahweh, appears recurrently through the Old Testament. And you're sort of at a loss to know who it is because he seems to speak with the voice of God, with the authority of God, and he does right here in this passage as well. And then when Jesus comes along, I don't know about you, but I used to think of Jesus sort of as, you know, like a play, you know, the high school plays you used to be in, and you'd stay behind the curtain until your role came. And then you'd come out from behind the curtain and play your character. And I always thought, well, Jesus stayed behind the curtain until he was born in Bethlehem, and then he came out and he played his character. But I want to submit to you that that's not true at all, that he was the eternal son of God, that he lived and interacted with his people in the Old Testament times. And that's exactly what Jesus said, right? When he spoke to the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you're fine life, but you don't realize they are the ones that are talking about me. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. He said to the Jewish leaders, if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me. Why? Because Moses wrote about me. (laughs) And then he came and met with his disciples after his resurrection. He said, oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe. Wasn't it necessary for me to enter into this time of suffering and to be crucified and rise from the dead as it is written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, everything about me has to be fulfilled. So I want to suggest to you that when Hagar meets with the angel of the Lord, She's not meeting with a luminous, glowing being with wings protruding out the back. She's meeting with the pre-incarnate Jesus. She's meeting with our eternal Lord. And I promise you that if you'll read it that way, you'll see it differently. Now, I don't know, perhaps uh, you're familiar with John Calvin, but I thought it might be useful to at least see what someone else thought about this. And his quote brings in the fathers of the church as well, the ancient leaders of the church. He says, let us inquire who this angel was. The ancient teachers of the church rightly understood it to be the eternal son of God in respect to his office as mediator. So I just want to assure you, this isn't heresy. This isn't some new idea that some, you know, crazy missionary from the Middle East has come up with. This is what the fathers of the church taught. This is what the fathers of the Reformation taught. This is what theologians understand today, that this is the eternal Son of God. Now, what does does he do? Well, he finds her. He finds her. And if that's the picture, going back, if that's the picture, he finds her, and she was going along a road, then I suspect he was pursuing her. (laughs) Just like that beautiful song we heard, you've been coming behind me, you've been pursuing me with your goodness all my life. And I suspect she heard footsteps, and I suspect she covered her face, and I suspect she kept her head down and she wanted to keep walking, but the goodness of the Lord was pursuing her. So when he finds her, and by the way, when Yahweh finds someone in the Old Testament, it's always a story of salvation. Like he found the children of Israel as a a vine in, 
in the desert and he transplanted them into this fertile field. Or he found David behind the sheep and then he brought David into his house to set him on his throne to be king over Israel. So when Yahweh finds, he's saving. He's saving. So I'm going to suggest that Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, the sent one of Yahweh, is meeting Hagar to save her. He's meeting her to save her. And he has, basically, he has six words for her. And the first one is, he calls her by name. And that's striking because so far, neither Abraham nor Sarah have called her by name in this text we've just read. If you look at it, it's only the narrator, the person who's writing the story, that tells us her name. Otherwise, we wouldn't know her name. But the angel of the Lord calls her, Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, for a woman enslaved with no horizon and no future, I can imagine that this would be very unexpected, right? Like, who, why, why would you care? Why would you want to know? And I'd also suggest that this is a good model for us. If we want to minister like Jesus, and we want to minister to those people who are sort of despised and uh, hated by others and and we want to introduce them to the love of God, maybe we start by asking, where have you come from? In other words, you know, tell me your story. Tell me what makes you, you. What's formed you? What's shaped you? And then, where are you going? Tell me your future. What, what are you dreaming of? What do you want to see in life? See, the, the text of the Old Testament is very, it's very sparse, isn't it? But that's exactly what the angel of the Lord is asking her. Where have you come from? Where are you going? What's your story? And what's your future? So I, I would say that this is a relationship word, that the angel of the Lord here is entering into relationship with this woman. He's starting with her a conversation. He wants to hear from her. Of course, she knows where she's come from. I'm running from my mistress, Sarai. <laughs> but she has no clue where she's going. She's on the road that goes from Israel down into Egypt. So she's probably trying to get back to that home that she grew up in that sold her into slavery. So she's between a home that's abused her and cast her out and a home that sold her into slavery. So where are you going, Hagar? Where are you going? So after that relationship word, there is another word, which is a hard word, I suggest. It says, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, if you were to read it in Hebrew, it would say, return to your mistress and submit under her hand. Right? We don't see that in English, but that's what it says in Hebrew, and that's important. I'd like you to hold on to that, because it was the same hand when Abraham said, your slave girl is in your power. Before that, he literally said, your slave girl is under your hand. Ooh. So do to her as you see fit, and Sarah did. And that's what led to Hagar running away. So this hand becomes sort of an image of subjugation in the passage, right? And the Lord is, in fact, saying to Hagar, go back to the house of Abram and Sarah. And I'm going to suggest this is a discipleship word. 
Isn't it like Jesus to say to a rich young ruler, well, you, you just lack one thing, buddy. Just go and sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. Come after me. <laughs> really? Peter, you know, you want to follow me? You want to be a leader of my disciples? Well, don't you know that uh, he who wants to come after me must deny himself, take up his instrument of execution, and follow me? Really? And I'll bet if we could just go around and tell every story in this room, I'll bet you that there are some hard places that you've been sent to as a disciple of Jesus, and he's not let you out of those hard places. It's because he has a destiny for you. It's because he has a future for you. It's not because he wants to punish you or hurt you, but he's got to shape us. He's got to mold us. He's got to turn us from what we are into something different. And so that's what he has to say to Hagar, this discipleship word, return to that hand that subjugate you and subjugated you and place yourself under it. It's a hard word, hard to hear. But what comes next is beautiful. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, Sarah, or sorry, pardon me, Hagar had heard this word, had she not? Can you imagine, you know, in, a, in the day when they don't have TVs and cell phones and iPads and so forth, what do you do for entertainment? Well, you sit around the fire and you talk. You actually have conversation with each other. So I imagine Abraham came back at various points in his life and he said, you know, I've met with the Lord, Yahweh, my Lord, and he's told me that my descendants are going to be as many as the stars of the heaven. So many they can't be counted. And I, I can see Sarah kind of like crinkling her brow and saying like, How's that going to be? Hagar probably had heard this promise. And probably just like you, she recognizes it as language of the covenant with God. That she is being uniquely blessed. That Hagar, the little slave girl, right, is going to have sons as many, so, that, so many that they can't be numbered. So I want to suggest to you that this is a word of inclusion. It's a word of embrace. It's a word that says to Hagar, you are not excluded. You are part of the plan. Now, I'm not suggesting that Ishmael was the son of the promise. He wasn't, right? It was Isaac who became the son of the promise. But then the question becomes, what happens to the, to the reject? Oh, what happens to the excluded one, right? That's the question of the gospel. So this is a word of inclusion. And then this next word, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. Let's just stop with that part. Uh, I had three daughters in the Middle East, and that's today's Middle East. And when they would ask me about my kids, I would say, yeah, I have three girls. And they would often say to me, very often say to me, well, just keep trying, Right? The idea was you need to keep trying till you have a son. That she would have a son, that she would know this son is the only son of Abraham, would be to her an amazing blessing. She would be relieved to know that she was pregnant with Abraham's heir. But then he goes on to say, You shall call his name Ishmael. Now, when I would, if I were to say, God is listening, or listen, God, in Arabic, it would be Isma Allah. You can almost hear it, can't you? Ishma El. 
God is listening. You are to name him little God is listening. Isn't that amazing? And why? Because Yahweh has listened to your affliction. And when you see Lord in all caps like that, it's the name of God. It's Yahweh. Yahweh has listened to your affliction. It's the same word again that when she was put under the hand of Sarah by Abraham and he and she afflicted him or she abused or mistreated her, it's the same word. God has listened to your affliction. So do you remember the question we asked earlier? Was Yahweh listening to the Egyptian girl enslaved in the house of Hebrews as he did to the Hebrews when they were enslaved in the house of the Egyptians? The answer is in the name of this young boy, Ishmael. God hears your affliction. So, so far, there's been a hard word, a discipleship word, but there's been some words of great blessing. And this word I'm going to call the security word because it gives her the security of knowing that she's pregnant with this boy. But here's where it gets a little bit fun, right? Because this next word is, uh, well, it just presents a challenge, doesn't it? All right, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. Uh, I learned a synonym for wild donkey at Avery County High School. <laughs> and if you, got, if you got called that, it didn't, it wasn't nice. It wasn't pretty, was it? If you got called a jackass... That was an ugly name, right? That meant you were stupid and you were stubborn. And that meant you were a beast of burden. You know, that's about as low as you can go. So is the angel of the Lord saying, you know, I'm going to give you all this seed and all these children and your child's going to be named God hears, but your boy's going to be a jackass. What do you think? I see some heads going, it doesn't fit, does it? It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. Well, there is a word that we have in Arabic that I would use for the Avery County High School word, jackass. Uh, it's hamar. It even sounds like it, doesn't it? If you say to somebody, you're a hamar, you've basically cursed them. You've said the ugliest thing you can say to them. And isn't it interesting, you know, Arabic and Hebrew are cognate languages. They're similar. And they have the same word in Hebrew, hemar. So if you want to call somebody a beast of burden, if you want to say to them they're stupid, they're obstinate, you call them a hemar. Right? That's not this word. Okay? This word is peri. And it's not saying to Ishmael, you're going to be stupid and stubborn and a beast of burden. The pere is of the same family, but it's the desert donkey. It's the donkey that lives in the wilderness that refuses to be domesticated. In ancient times, it was a symbol of freedom and rugged individualism. You with me? See, I told you I was inviting you. I'm inviting you to change the way you see things. So this is different probably for a lot of you. This is not a curse on Ishmael. You know, I found a, um, a Jewish commentator, actually. He's not, a, not even a Christian. He's Jewish. And he saw this same thing in the text. He said, like the wild donkey among the beasts, so are the Ishmaelites among men. 
In their nature and destiny, they call to mind the sturdy, fearless, and fleet-footed Syrian onager. Now, that's, we don't use that word, but it's the Hebrew word pere. It's a desert donkey who inhabits the wilderness and is almost impossible to domesticate. Huh. So I wonder if the Lord, the angel of the Lord, was saying to, to Hagar, not your son's going to be stupid, but your son's going to be He's going to refuse domestication. Now, the next phrase in that verse is also telling his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. I think that's about nine words in English. In Hebrew, it's about five. But basically says, his hand on all and everyone's hand on him. It's like this. Kind of gives this image of pushing away. Uh, And remember what I told you about the hand in the passage, right? It's the symbol of subjugation. Like if you're enslaved, you're under someone's hand. So this is what the angel of the Lord is saying to Ishmael, about Ishmael. He's going to be fearless and isolated and live not with his his brothers, but apart from them. He is going to reject the hand of subjugation. He's going to throw it off. So you, Hagar, return to your mistress under her hand. Your son who's coming will cast off the hand of subjugation. He will roam the desert wild and free. Makes a difference, doesn't it? Makes a big difference. And for a person who's lived my life among the peoples of the Middle East, I know what the media here does. You know, you see Islamic terrorism and you think, These people are out to destroy us. But folks, most are not. They're great people of hospitality, people of honor. They want to have you into their homes. They're people who are blessed. And then the last word there is, he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. Now, if you read that in the New International Version, It says, he will live in enmity to all his brothers. Oh, it's quite a different translation, isn't it? But the better translation is this one. He's going to have his own land, his own place to live. And if you just go a little bit further into the Genesis story, Genesis 25, you see that. He lives in the desert of Paran, apart, not among his brothers, Isaac and the descendants of the 12 tribes, but over against them, before them. So it's not a curse. Ishmael is not a subject of continual enmity and warfare in the Old Testament. In fact, when he appears next, well, of course, he's cast out of Abraham's home when he's older, when he's 13 years old. But when he appears next, he's pictured burying his father with Isaac, his half-brother. Right? So it's a picture of reunion, that the two had actually come together. So I want to suggest to you that these six words meant that Hagar returned to Abraham and Sarah's home with her head held high. Yes, she was a slave. Yes, she was a common laborer. But when she went back, you know, before she had looked down on Sarah, her mistress. Now she goes back and she can serve with a heart of humility because she's been 
seen. She's been valued. She's been loved. And not only that, but the son who was born was Ishmael. And we often think of him as the reject, the one who wasn't the elect son, the chosen son. But actually, he lived in Abraham's home for at least 13 years, possibly 14. And when the angel appeared to Abraham again and said, no, not Ishmael, but your wife Sarah will bear a son, do you remember what Abraham said? He said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He interceded for his boy. So I want to suggest there was a father-son relationship that was strong there. You know, if your boy's grown up in your house for 13 years, you know how you're going to feel about him. He's yours. Your flesh and blood. So I want to suggest to you that this story of Ishmael shouldn't be strange to us at all, should it? Because you and I were without hope and without God. We were strangers to the covenants of Israel. We were estranged from God. We were enemies. But God, who's rich in mercy for his great love with which he loved us, he found us and he brought us to himself and he gave us his very great promises and we've been brought into Christ all undeserving. We've received his grace. So the story of Ishmael is my story (laughs) and it's your story. It's our story. It's the story of the gospel, a God who extends himself in love to even those who we reject, who we might hate. And You know, I've seen this lived out in the Middle East. Um, You can see this nation of Syria surrounds Lebanon, and that's where I served for about seven years. And that war in Syria, that tragic war, it's still going on. It sent refugees flooding over the borders of Syria into Lebanon. And they would kind of make their tents in potato fields. You can imagine the kids weren't getting education. A lot of the wives had lost their husbands or lost the kids had lost their fathers. Some of them had lost brothers in this tragic war. It was find anything you can to play with. But they were beautiful people, you know. I love that one right there in the middle, that little girl. I'm kind of partial to girls. I have three. But I look at her eyes and I just say, man, something's special there. And this family, sure enough, came right into our church and became part of it. Now, these are Syrian, Sunni, Muslim refugees, right? Their lives had been totally shaken up, totally displaced. And yet, because they came into the church, they were encountered by the love of God. Things changed and changed drastically. This is one of our church picnics. And I just show you that to say, you know, a number of these people are Syrian refugees. Of course, you see the girl with the headdress. But a number of them are Syrian refugees. But they came to blend into our church and to enjoy the fun and the fellowship of that Arabic evangelical church that we have there. So God's grace wasn't far from these people. Now this is, I I love preaching at Plumtree, but this is my favorite place to preach because this is a congregation full of Syrian women. And I told them the story of Hagar just as I'm telling it to you. 
and tears would come to their eyes and they would shake their heads knowingly. They knew what it meant to be abused, to be cast out of their homes, to be running. And yet here they were encountering God's grace, the gospel of Jesus with his people. It was a beautiful experience, one I hope I have again. Some of the kids were picked up and brought into the church's educational program. So that's my lovely bride there, Stephanie. But they enjoyed these crafts and learning right in the context of the church. It was beautiful to see. So this is a story, you see, of being seen. As Hagar is seen, I think Hagar and Ishmael invite us, don't they? They invite us to change the way we see. You know, I picture her running along that road in the Middle East as a woman without a male companion. In the Middle East, that means something, with a bump on her belly, probably in her late teens or early 20s. And, you know, she would have been the object of disgust by every man she encountered on that road. Do you hear me? So let me ask you, and I, and I ask myself this, who, who disgusts me? <laughs> you know, is it that person with so many body piercings or tattoos or that person whose skin color is a little different or who doesn't speak English well? You know, those... I'm not saying it that about you. I'm saying that because I know my own heart. And I know that that disgust lies in there. And it's got to always be cleaned out. It's got to always be washed out. And I think Hagar invites me, and, and as she does, I invite you, to see the person who disgusts you differently. And maybe those, those questions, you know, at the beginning are, is a, oh, sorry, is a good place to start. Where, where are you from? Tell me what's made you. Tell me what has shaped you. And then the other one, and, and tell me your dreams. Tell me where you're going, what you want out of life. That's the way the angel of Yahweh, who I think is our Lord Jesus, encountered a disgusting woman on a desert road. Today, if Hagar is to be encountered, Hagar or Ishmael, it won't be through a glowing, luminous, sort of winged angel, right? It's not, that's not going to happen. Because you are the body of Christ and I am. We've, been, we've received the spirit of Christ and we've been brought into Jesus. We're now his hands and feet, his arms, his eyes, his head, We are the body of Christ, right? It's us. It's us. We are. So if if Hagar and Ishmael are to be encountered today, it'll be through you and me. Just like they were encountered by that little church in Beirut. It'll be you and me. I invite you. Hagar invites you. The angel of the Lord, our Lord Jesus, invites you to see things differently. Amen?
Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you are, uh, you are good. Your goodness has pursued us all the days of our lives, Lord, from here in Avery County to the ends of the world. You've never let me go for a moment. I bless you, Father. I thank you. Lord, I thank you that your people are in this place and that their ears are open to hearing your word. Pray, Father, that you would take us further and deeper into this journey of obedient discipleship, of sonship and being daughters and sons of you. That, Father, we can go to the hard places with the assurance that we are seen, we are known, we are loved. Lord, let your blessing rest on Plumtree Church, on its leaders, its servants, and uh, continue to fill it with your spirit to do your will in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.